Hello and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today on the program, we're going to take a bit more of a nuts and bolts approach to a very specific niche group. Guest Jeff Waters has a Wall Street background like few others and has created a niche catering to the needs of other top Wall Street and financial and corporate professionals using a very specific approach based on his inside experience there. Jeff Waters founded OFC Financial Wealth Management in 2005 with the idea that busy professionals don't have time to keep track of their finances in an ever-changing financial landscape. Jeff's entire career has been in the financial services industry, and during his 17 years on Wall Street, he covered some of the top institutional investors as a research salesman at Solomon Brothers. He also managed day-to-day operations of the number one ranked equity research department. Jeff has a BA in economics from Yale and an MBA from Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Jeff is chairman of the board of Let's Get Ready, a groundbreaking nonprofit organization that expands college access for low-income high school students and is a co-founder and board chairman of the United States Wrestling Federation to raise funds and advance interests of the sport. Jeff is a sought-after speaker who regularly teaches a broad range of personal finance topics to employees of major corporations, nonprofits, and governmental entities. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the program today. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me, Dave. We've had a number of guests on this program who've taught us about their particular niche practice and how they developed it, some of which were based on a characteristic of the client-based, some were based on the service offered to solve a common problem, and some were a hybrid of both. But yours is quite unique. It all stems from your background. Tell me a little bit about your early career in the world's financial capital. Great. So, Dave, when I got out of business school, I joined the uh, equity research sales desk at Solomon Brothers. That means I was uh, calling day in and day out the portfolio managers of the mutual funds and hedge funds You know that many advisors have their clients' money in now. And I was talking to them about our views on stocks. So I wasn't an execution salesman. I was a research salesman and spent 100% of my time selling and talking to sophisticated institutional investors about the equity research product. So that required you to really have a, a very in-depth knowledge of all of these uh, individual equities that, that Solomon had and, and an investing background on top of that. So your big milestone that got your advisory career started was when you shifted your role from an equity salesman to a manager in the equity research department and worked directly with the analyst. Tell us about how that changed your mind. Yeah, well, so it was kind of a natural evolution for me. As as research salesmen went, I was always known to be someone who really got in-depth on the stocks and, um, you know, uh, spent a lot of time with the analysts. I kind of became a little bit of an analyst whisperer. And uh, being an equity research analyst on the sell side is a very difficult job. You're asked to to be, uh, you know, a kind of one-armed paper hanger. You're supposed to be a great stock picker. You're supposed to do in-depth research. You're supposed to be able to write. You're supposed to be able to do financial modeling. It, it, there aren't many people who really have that range of skills and could do that job. And so at a certain point, uh, management saw me as a useful person to have directly in the research department. So I could spend 100% of my time working with the analysts, helping them work through the stock stories, helping them connect the dots, which is an expression uh, that has always resonated with me. Uh, I'm a natural generalist. People used to ask me all the time, Jeff, why didn't you become an analyst? Which was, uh, when my clients asked me that, that was always a compliment. That was their way of saying, like, 
you're capable of doing this work. But what I knew about myself that they didn't know was I, I definitely like to see the big picture and connect the dots. I, I don't like to go a million miles deep on one topic. I didn't want to spend my whole life knowing everything there was to know about the paper industry. But in my role, I was expected to have a reasonable amount of, not, a reasonable amount of knowledge about literally hundreds of stocks. And so uh, doing that year in and year out, you really build a very broad knowledge base. But uh, also as a result of that and spending so much time with the analysts, it got me much closer to the dynamics of the business and uh, how analysts were compensated. Uh, and that, that led me down a path when I, when I broke away from the street and moved in a different direction. So as a Wall Street veteran, your generalist status gave you a broad range of interests and, and a broad range of knowledge to draw upon. Uh, but you also had inside knowledge about what those guys' lives were like and how they, how they worked and how they interacted with each other. And that led to your discovery uh, that financial professionals of all stripes may have some blind spots in their personal financial lives. And then you set out to help them after that realization. Can you go into more detail about how that worked? Yeah, actually, a lot of that happened after I left the street. So I basically lived through the tech boom of the late 90s, uh, which was a very high pressure, uh, very stressful time to be a research manager. And then I lived through the tech bust in which we had to unravel the hiring, mostly in the tech sector that we had done. Uh, I, I have to say that I actually presided in some sense over six rounds of layoffs over a two-year period from 2001 to 2003, and, and that was not a lot of fun. And so finally, I'd had enough, and in 2003, uh, in the last of those six rounds of layoffs, I actually laid myself off more or less, and uh, with no particular plan in mind. I didn't leave intending to become a financial advisor. I had I had nothing specific in mind, and I finally started sitting down at the kitchen table with, you know, I call it the pile of papers, and I had three or four loose end financial issues uh, that I just had never dealt with. And one day I was sitting at that table, and the light bulb went on, and I just said, you know, guys in the money business don't take care of their own money. It's the cobbler's children without shoes. And I found that as I finally just had the time to, to pick up the pile of papers, one of them was uh, I had done some estate planning and they had set up uh, an islet, you know, a an, uh, an life insurance trust, but I had never actually gone through the process of assigning the ownership of the policy to the trust. At the time, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And in fact, I remembered there was something I was supposed to do with that <laughs> with that uh, life insurance policy, but I didn't really remember what it was. I had to call back the estate planning lawyer who I hadn't talked to in a few years. I'm like, what was that thing I was supposed to do? You know, so I finally started, you know, taking these things off the to-do list, and I found that each time I finished a task once and for all, my stress level was going down. And, and I just sat there one day, and the phrase that came into my head was feeling out of control about money. People in the money business don't take care of their own money. They feel out of control about money. Not that they don't have enough money, because especially that, that period in the, in the late 90s and early 00s, uh, people on the street were really making a lot of money, but they knew they weren't taking care of things. And so uh, I just had the, the epiphany and I thought, you know, I could become a financial advisor and work with these uh, finance people 
who don't have the time or inclination to take care of their own money, not just the investment stuff, but all of the stuff. And so that's what led me down the path to uh, starting OFC. And and that name, OFC, stands for Order from Chaos. That was that kitchen table epiphany about, you know, if you could just have people feel that their stuff was being taken care of, that alone would be very high value. And uh, so th- that was the progression and how it all happened. So you took that personal epiphany, that feeling of accomplishment when you checked one of those off the list and extrapolate that into some of your colleagues and said, they must be feeling the same thing. They're just as busy as I am. Why don't I capitalize on this, this bit of knowledge that I have and, and try and make a business out of it? That's a terrific insight to apply. And clearly it's worked. Actually, you know, Dave, it's a funny thing that um, early on I had former colleagues would call and say, oh, I heard you're doing something new. You know, the word got around a little bit what I was up to. And I would tell them that story, but I didn't mean it as a sales pitch. I was just kind of telling them what happened. And in at least two or three cases, I had people call me back like a couple of months later. Someone would call me back and say, you know, I've been thinking about what you said to me. You know, you're really right. I'm always saying I'm going to get to this. And my wife or my husband is always on my case. You're supposed to be the financial expert. Why aren't we doing these things? And uh, they hired me. So I realized that, uh, you know, sometimes your best sales pitch is when you're not consciously trying to sell. It's just a more uh, natural communication between colleagues and friends who respect each other uh, about what they're doing. Now, see, that's a fantastic insight. Guys that are out there pushing too hard and and working too slick and trying to get over, not going to have the same kind of, of good fortune that you've had just by being authentic and relating to people with a common problem. I think that's a fantastic insight. We're coming up on a break. When we come back, we're going to learn what human capital is and how it applies to Jeff's practice and how we can take advantage of this if we see it in our client base. We'll be right back. Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsourced options and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. For more information or to set up an appointment, call 201 919-4838. And we're back with Jeff Waters talking about human capital. Now, there's a very specific area of personal finance that makes your practice unique. Jeff, tell us about human capital and tell us how this all works. So uh, back to the story about working with the equity research analysts. Uh, and, And I think this is why having spent so much time with them and then having been in management, and having been one of the two people that really decided year-end bonuses, which were, you know, everything to people, uh, you know, the people on the institutional side of the street, uh, the base salary is usually just a, a small fraction of their compensation. And so, you know, uh, I had a lot of insight into what it was that drove uh, the analyst compensation. 
And a lot of it, to, to simplify it, boiled down to how hot your group was. If your sector, if you were a tech analyst in the late 1990s and your stocks were on fire, you were going to get paid more money. And that was just because there was more investor interest, more commission votes, uh, more investment banking revenue. All the things that drove revenue in the business were, were driven by uh, largely how well your stocks were doing. So, so I just started to spool that out of my head and realized that, you know, on January 1st of every year, if you were in the late 1990s, a networking telecommunications equipment analyst, like you followed Cisco at the time that Cisco had the number one market cap for those who don't remember that or know that that happened, uh, your comp for that year was going to be driven by how those stocks did. So it was almost like you explicitly owned a position in your stocks. It was a, a, an intangible asset, uh, but a real asset. And it had to be factored into your asset allocation. Otherwise, you would be, you know, in effect, uh, double counting, right? If you had a full tech allocation and your compensation for the year, which could be uh, swing by hundreds of thousands, or at that time, tech analysts were making multiple millions of dollars, uh, you really needed to consider this much more explicitly in your asset allocation. That was my original epiphany and an approach I wanted to take with the clients that I was going to have from the financial services industry. So really, that's the human capital factor is that they're factors that are outside of the normal portfolio asset allocation, but they're still a real position because they're part of the, the human compensation that these guys get. Yeah, human capital's become kind of a term of art. It's a fancy way of saying, you know, your earning power, right? And, and I've said this a million times to people, but we tend to do asset allocation. We just take the existing assets that the client has. And by that, we really mean investable assets, also liquid investable assets. And, and we do the pie graph on it, you know, 30% of this, 20% of that. And you're not factoring in uh, that your human capital or earning power is going to drive the future uh, investable assets that will be brought into the portfolio. And I started to go through this process of actually trying to quantify it and put it into the pie plate and say, hey, you've already got a 20% position in this intangible asset that you can't touch. You can't do anything about it. And uh, it has certain characteristics. You know, if you're a telecom equipment analyst, you know, you own large cap U.S. technology and you already own a lot of it. If you then go build the rest of your portfolio in a traditional way, you're going to end up way overweighted to that asset, which happens to be like at that time, especially an unusually risky asset. And so, you know, in a common sense term, people would just think of it as doubling down, right? You're just doubling down on technology. Um, and so I started to, to talk through and And the analysts intuitively got it because in their minds, they understood that this was an issue. And for some people, uh, they would try to 
do their own asset allocation in a certain way. But for others, it would actually be the opposite. You know, uh, remember Peter Lynch's book, uh, One Up on Wall Street, his message was buy what you know. So it's a very common thing for people want to invest in the stocks in the industry that they know. And so they get even more and more exposed, right? And so our jobs as financial advisors to be risk managers for our clients and go to them and say, listen, look at what you're doing here. You know, you own the stocks in your industry. You cover the industry. Your earning power is driven by how well your industry is doing. You've got too much exposure. We need to build your portfolio to diversify around that exposure. So analysts are constantly running this balancing act in their head when they've learned about this from you that says, okay, I'm, I'm clearly overweight in this. I'm going to have to not have that in my regular investment portfolio because it's, it's just too much risk. Well, well, in fact, once they hire me uh, and they, once they acknowledge, gee, I, I, you know, you're right, uh, once they hire me, now they don't have to think about it anymore because I'm doing it for them. You know, <laughs> that's great. We've seen that same phenomenon in uh, entrepreneurs as well, in people that start their own businesses and, and are very good at a particular business or a particular industry. They tend to be very close at the best with that industry and live and die by it. And it, it can really get you because stuff moves fast when you're that focused on one sector. You can really get taken by surprise, even if it's one you work in. And I'm glad you brought up the closely held business thing because that's another example that it is in many ways even more extreme than the sell side analyst. You got, let's say someone owns a business that is a tech business. So they have that asset, which is a big part of their balance sheet. That asset is also what generates their earnings, it's re- and which most people tend to think of as one thing, but it's really two separate things. Your, your balance sheet asset from your business and your income statement, the earnings, the income it generates for you are two different exposures. And then what happens is people who are uh, successful enough and knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable enough to have a successful, closely held business often have deep expertise in their sector. So then you got the Peter Lynch thing again. To the extent that they get enough cash thrown off to want to do some investing, what do they tend to invest in? the same sector. Those people have triple exposure. The asset of their company, the income that the company throws off, and the stock portfolio in that sector that they build around it. Somebody needs to come in and help these folks get some genuine diversification in the portfolio. Now, this kind of approach fascinates me because it really takes into account a very holistic approach. To people's financial position. It's, it's an investment approach and a portfolio build, and it treats it almost like a planning issue because you're affecting every other portion of their lives in many ways. Uh, but it's unique to a very specific group of clients. Not all retail clients are going to encounter this. I mean, this is not typical of the general population to have such a, a, an inflated position in one sector. Yeah. And there's one other issue that we had um, like at Citigroup and with Wall Street people, and you'll have this with a lot of people too, but on Wall Street at the time in particular, since I mentioned that very often 90% or more of people's compensation was in their bonus, uh, the practice evolved. And when Warren Buffett took over Solomon Brothers, he was the first one that forced us to start having 
a substantial portion of our bonus set aside as stock. And so you had company stock and it wasn't liquid. Uh, it, usually these things had three or four year vesting. Sometimes it was annual vesting, but other times it was what we call cliff vesting. You had a four year vest and none of it vested until the whole four years was up. And so for highly paid people, if you had four of these tranches of stock, you could have millions of dollars of illiquid company stock in your portfolio. So think about the sell-side analyst. He or she has that, uh, let's just call it Citigroup stock, because that's where I was. And then they've got that intangible asset, which is their sector. And so when you're building, I like to call it the pie plate, You know that graph that people always see. As I explained to people, you've already got two big slices of the pie plate that are sitting in there. Your Citigroup stock, which is a large cap value stock, and your sector, which depending on what your sector is, has other characteristics. It may also be a value sector. It may be a growth sector. It could be a lot of things. And those two pieces are big pieces. They are not incidental pieces. And as I explained to people, the portfolio I built for you has to be such that when I slide it into the pie plate, the whole pie looks the way it's supposed to. If I just build the regular, call it 60-40 portfolio with the normal size pie slices, 30% large cap US, you know, 15% international, however people tend to do it. If you did the regular way and you slid it into the pie plate, you'd have all kinds of bad overweights and underweights. And so you need to build, and I explain this to people in my investment policy statement, I'll have two separate columns, the overall asset allocation and the asset allocation, what the portfolio that I'm going to build for the client looks like, just to remind them that what I'm managing for them is being built in it for a very specific purpose. And it may not mimic the general market. It may lag in many cases because you already have a lot of embedded equity exposure. The portfolio I have may have tilts toward other things that could either outperform at any given point in time or underperform a lot. I just want to remind people, don't look at the performance of just the portfolio that I built for you. It's built to be part of a of a of a broader whole, and uh, take some time, you know, getting people used to that. Uh, now the clients who are in this business are pretty sophisticated financially themselves, so they get it. Uh, but everybody's human, you know. They see what the market is doing, and they expect the portfolio to mimic it. And so uh, sometimes that can work against you. But uh, I have one one very good story because I was just talking to this client just the other day about it. You know, if you're looking for a practical example of how a situation like this played out, you know, I can tell you about that. Yeah, you work with some very sophisticated people. They, you'd think they would not have to worry about this kind of thing. They'd sort of understand it inherently. But you really have to take people aside and convince them that this is an, an issue. And you had one particular one that illustrated it very well, if I remember. Well, you know, uh, and this had to do actually more with the Citigroup stock. You know, a former colleague of mine, I actually was kind of his mentor, uh, he hired me and we started to look at this Citigroup position he had because of this, you know, vesting I told you about. And, and it was a huge asset. And, you know, so here's a problem. Let's say you want to have 30% or 40% 
large cap U.S. stocks, which is a pretty normal percentage, the Citigroup position could have accounted for 20 or 25% of it right off the bat. And so that puts you in a real bind. If you only have 10% left to do U.S. large cap stocks with, what are you going to put it in? If you put it in a general S&P 500, like the spider, the spider is split half and half between growth and value. And then you have this gigantic value position, which is Citigroup. And you have relatively little exposure. What if Citigroup lags badly, which of course, it almost went bankrupt in 2008 and has lagged ever since. It's been a terrible stock, you know? Uh, So you say, well, I I just got to buy more exposure. Uh, But how much more? Because at a certain point, you're going to go beyond the weighting that you want. And how much are you willing to go up to 45, 50, 55%? You know, Uh, so there's a certain amount of art there in trying to uh, balance that. But the other issue is the big issue is that you've got this value position. So for this client, I said, with the rest of the U.S. equity exposure, the normal ETFs that we're going to buy, we're going to tilt that to the S&P growth versus the S&P value. Now, you don't want to be doing no S&P value because then Citigroup becomes your entire U.S. large cap value position, which is a very uncomfortable place to be. So what I ended up doing in this case was I I think I went five or 10 percentage points above the exposure that I would have normally wanted. And I was okay doing that. I really generally favored U.S large cap stocks anyway. And I split it, call it the rest of it, 25% value or 20% value and uh, call it 75 or 80% growth. So this client's large cap US portfolio ended up being Citigroup, a sliver of value so that he had some other value exposure and then a much larger piece of growth so that the value and growth balanced each other out. I was looking at, I have had these positions on for over uh, something like uh, 12 years and never touched them. And I have many positions like that. I have just never touched them for many years. And I was looking at it recently. And as we all know, uh, growth has outperformed value dramatically. And I was, (laughs) had the opportunity to point it out to him. You know, you always want to have a chance to remind your clients if you've done something smart for them, especially if it's something unusual. I mean, this was the whole basis of my business. I said, hey, look at this trade we did and look how it's worked out. And I actually went back and did the calculations as to how much better off he was having that split between the growth and value as opposed to if we just bought the spider, you know, and it was a few hundred thousand dollars of incremental value from building the thing that way. And it was a particularly important if, if Citigroup stock had done well over that time, it wouldn't have mattered as much. But since it wasn't doing well, uh, and this particular client still works there and he's in a management job, and there's really nothing he can do about that, looking at the world that way from his point of view ended up having you know, a very, very positive impact on his outcomes. And so uh, one thing I like to say to people is, you know, there's always two elements of the stuff you're doing with clients. It's the actual dollars, you know, is, are the accounts performing well, but there's the psychology of it too. We all know this, right? How does your client feel about it? And I would just suggest to your listeners that 
just even having a conversation with the clients that this is relevant for, uh, pointing this out to them and, and getting into it, it's not the kind of thing they're going to hear from that many people. It's going to show you to be a more sophisticated thinker who is really honing in on their specific personal situation and say, hey, uh, Dave or Joan, you know, let's think about your exposures here. You know, uh, you work in a certain industry, you get stock uh, or you own a closely held business. It's the biggest part of your net worth. How should we build the portfolio to complement that as opposed to re-accentuating those exposures? I have found just having those conversations with people to be really fruitful. And if you have smart clients, which most of us do, they're really going to appreciate it. And they, you know, they may raise issues and insights uh, that help you do a better job together in, in managing their affairs. Let's talk about those clients for just another second. Uh, most of yours are going to come from, from centered around the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, because that's the center of Wall Street where you had your experience. What if I'm an advisor in Iowa or Minnesota? Can, can these same techniques be applied there? I mean, there's got to be rich people everywhere. This actually makes this a, a, a national, if not a global practice. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it's potentially relevant to anybody, but it, but it depends on what your client does for a living. You know, if someone's a teacher and their income is locked in, then, you know, then this isn't really an issue. Though I will say that even in that case, teachers' incomes are more like a stream of uh, bond payments, right? And so uh, if you really feel that their uh, income and their pension is secure, uh, then you might want to be able to take a little bit more risk. But everybody has owners of closely held businesses or executives in all kinds of industries. If you're in the oil patch, the oil patches, uh, uh, I don't have a lot of people that work in the oil patch, but we used to cover the oil service industry at Solomon Brothers and do a lot of equity offerings for those companies. So I got a lot of exposure to that business and people who worked in it. But you could just imagine that people who work in the oil exploration business, you know, or if you had a closely held business that serviced that industry, you have the value of your business exposed to the energy industry. The salary you take from it is of course, exposed. And then you could just imagine that people work in that business who hear a lot of chatter about wells and how a company is doing, you know, want to invest in those stocks too. And so they have three levels of exposure to the energy industry. An energy industry with a lot of big volatility and swings too. Yeah. Like look what happened in 2015 and now again, you know, and so once again, I, always, I, I say to many clients, my job is to manage risk for you. If you've got a client in that situation and you are not at least addressing this with them and pointing out to them how exposed they are and, and uh, suggesting taking measures to add some balance and diversification to those exposures, you know, I, I think that uh, you're opening yourself up to some real criticism, you know, when, when, uh, when things go south, uh, those people are going to be in, in potentially very difficult circumstances. So uh, if you're in the, in the uh, grain belt, you've got people in the agricultural industry, uh, they have their kind of exposures. So no matter what business your clients are in, you want to think about 
what kind of exposure that is, you know, is the price of energy going to drive it? Are they in a business that's import export where the value of the dollar matters? And if it does, what should be built around that exposure? There's a million situations and uh, thinking through them, it's interesting and uh, it just takes your relationship with your client to a different level to show that you're bringing this kind of thinking uh, to their situation. You know, we all say, a lot of people say they, you know, every portfolio is built for the client, uh, but I'm not sure in many cases, you know, how often it's true. You know, there's a lot of model portfolios out there. So when you get into a client that is a senior executive in a business or owns a closely held business and start to dive into this and start to put numbers on it too, uh, you're, you're going to show them a different level of thinking. And when they're at the next industry conference and the, and the issue of personal financial advice comes up, your client's going to be the one to say, well, my advisor is helping me think through this in a much more sophisticated way. So now you've given them a story, which leads to, in many cases, a referral, which is the great way to go. While we're talking about that, you you deliver a very specific service to a very specific subset of your client base. How does this affect the way you market your practice? Is this this bragging referral that, that everybody would love to have the best way to go about it for you? And are you going to continue to do that? Well, I think, you know, referrals are most people's number one uh, uh, way of building their business. And and yeah, and I, and I mentioned that story, how people started calling me. I think they were just checking in with me as a former colleague and friend. But the word started getting around about what I was telling them. And I had people say, like, you know, what's your thing about, you know, diversifying my risk of being an analyst? And so uh, I think if you're out there and become known as the person who has figured out a little bit better mousetrap for how to work with people in a particular industry. And I know that, you know, you're talking to clients about having niches. So many niches are, are uh, built around people who work in a certain business, right? And so if the word gets around that you are building portfolios in a different and more sophisticated way, uh, that's just a really powerful thing. You know, I think uh, having uh, other ways to do it is maybe to write a piece maybe get it published in a trade publication for your industry. Uh, that would also be, uh, you know, if you can get yourself out there publicly recognized as the expert on this issue, that could really be a powerful thing. Right. We've, we've talked about expert positioning before, but I think you've really honed it in and sharpened the point uh, a great deal by showing something very, very specific that targets a very specific need and solves the problem really well. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with us today, Jeff. I've really enjoyed our discussion. I'm sure our audience is going to want to hear all about this, and we're going to see if we can have you back in future to expand on some of this. Great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Dave. We've been speaking with Jeff Waters of OSC Wealth Management about building a niche being sophisticated financial professionals and how it came to be the central tenet of his firm. If you have questions about factoring in human capital or other topics you've heard on this program, just drop us a line here at 4advisors at pinnacleadvisory.com and we'll get you some answers. You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and until next time, thanks for listening. You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. 
This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. Our guest on this podcast includes specific companies and their stocks from experience he had years ago as an analyst and employee. Nothing mentioned is to persuade or dissuade anyone from reviewing those stocks on their own. No mention is a recommendation to own or not own specific companies in a portfolio. They are included as examples of the overall strategy that Jeff Waters has employed since becoming an independent advisor.